Welcome to the Global Research News Hour Summer Series. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a weekly public affairs broadcast produced out of CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Metis Nation, in partnership with the Centre for Research on Globalization. Our shows air on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States and are podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. This week, we are airing two presentations from the 2017 Geopolitical Economy Research Group Conference at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. The conference was timed with the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution and therefore chose to explore revolution as a theme. Talks at the weekend-long event covered the widespread and widely varying causes, contexts, conditions, and consequences of modern revolutions as they have expressed themselves around the globe. On this week's program, we'll highlight two of the talks which dealt specifically with the dynamics playing out during and since the October Revolution of 1917 and how they might inform revolutionary projects to come. Our first speaker is Roger Annis. A frequent interview guest on this program, Roger is a Vancouver-based writer, trade union activist, retired aerospace worker, and self-described socialist. He's visited post-earthquake Haiti as well as Ukraine since the 2014 overthrow of President Yanukovych. He is one of the editors of the news and analysis site newcoldwar.org and also publishes his own website, A Socialist in Canada, at the URL rogerannis.com. In his talk, Roger Annis notes misconceptions about the Russian Revolution and its aftermath that seem to divide self-described Marxists and anarchists and others who derive inspiration from it. He indicates that new class alliances need to be forged to tackle the climate change emergency, and he emphasizes revolution and its role in resisting imperial domination. So here is Roger Annis speaking at the University of Manitoba's St. John's College on September 29th, 2017. My talk deals with thorny questions of how to conduct international solidarity with people who are under attack by imperialism and how the transition from capitalism to socialism may take place. What are the lessons of the last hundred years of class struggle in, on this planet? Uh, since the first great socialist revolution. Not the last, by any means, but the first uh, great one that has taken place. So, there's really three large reasons why I've come back to this topic in a deeper way than I ever have. One is as a result of the events in Ukraine in the year 2014. Um, Since uh, what I call the Maidan coup, the overthrow of Ukraine's elected president in February of 2014, uh, I have seen uh, a large number of people laying claim to left-wing and Marxist ideas, anarchist ideas. I've seen many people laying claim to the, or adhering to the heritage of the Russian Revolution on which, um, with whom uh, fundamental disagreements, they couldn't be deeper, have taken place over the events in Ukraine. In my opinion, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward uh, issue in one respect. We've seen a drive by the imperialist countries of the West to uh, weaken and enfeeble the national sovereignty of the Ukrainian people. And they did that by perpetrating or uh, assisting in perpetrating a coup d'etat in February of 2014 and bringing into power a right-wing anti-Russian government. Uh, that's a pretty fundamental um, uh, thing. And I think we're all familiar with uh, the fallout. Well, 
Uh, it turns out that many people on the global left don't see it that way. Many buy into the idea that Russia intervened aggressively to turn Ukraine into a kind of a puppet state of Russia. And of course the famous annexation of Crimea, which I reject totally as, as an annexation. I say this was a, a decision of political self-determination by the Crimean people in March of 2014, uh, which we defended at the time on the New Cold War website. Well, not quite at the time, because the website came a few months later, but we continue to, to defend. Um, so very fundamental disagreements. Uh, I see much of the global left repeating the language of the imperialists to the effect that Russia is an aggressor country, an imperialist country it's called. Um, a country that suppresses the national rights of the Ukrainian people, that uh, uh, illegally annexed Crimea. And it's been shocking to me to see that because this is so far from reality. And I can't think that this is just the simple misunderstanding that's happened in the year 2014. There's something deep and underlying because we're, I'm talking about people who lay claim to a political heritage that's more than 100 years old. In the case of Marxists, something like 170 years old. And yet I couldn't be further apart from them on fundamental issues of current world politics. So there's something deeper going on here. It's not just a little misunderstanding over what happened in Ukraine. And I think that um, what's happened is there's been a drift away over the decades from properly studying and understanding Russia, beginning with what Russia became uh, after the 1917 revolution and then uh, in the Soviet Union under Stalin and his successors, but also continuing with the demise of the Soviet Union and the arisal of the new republics of the Russian Federation, which are, are now capitalist, or I think more accurately, state capitalist republics, beginning with Russia, but Ukraine, uh, Eastern Europe. We know of the transformations that took place in 1990, 91, 92. And so I think there's been a tendency to find simple, simplistic answers to the complicated questions of why did the Russian why did the Soviet Union uh, um, demise and what happened afterwards? And in fact, if you look at the, the, the history, what you'll see is there's a, there's a swift moving away, not a swift, a rather steady moving away from proper, serious study of the Soviet Union and then the Russian Revolution. It's just not treated very seriously by Western left-wing political analysis, whether it's Marxist, whether it's anarchist, or, and also not by liberal historical analysis. So something is, there's been a slide away really from the, from the Marxist standpoint of the methods of historical materialism in studying and analyzing Russia. So that's the first big reason for me, the events in Ukraine. The second big reason is, uh, as I, like everyone else, you know, become more and more concerned with the global warming emergency. And what I see in the left wing of the environmental movement uh, globally is a real lack of strategic vision. Um, I mean, everyone obviously in the left, and it's now become, uh, I could say, getting close to universal. Humanity realizes we're in a global warming emergency. Um, so for the left then, what, what is the future society that we need to escape from the emergency? What would an ecological society look like? Um, uh, and how do we get there? What are the class alliances of workers, farmers, uh, indigenous people, middle class people, even upper class people, if possible, if possible. What are the class alliances that are need, needed to put the world, the entire planet, on a path to ecological salvation? Because if we don't do that, then the future is very bleak indeed for, for the human race, very bleak indeed if we don't embark upon that path. So how do we, how do, we do that? The class alliance, what forms of government are needed in the initial stage that can begin? Because certainly we have very few governments in the world that are committed to a serious, a tackling of the global warming emergency. 
And the most basic point is not being made by radical environmentalists, which is that are the current levels of production and cons consumption on the earth sustainable or not? And if they're not, how, how far do we have to go to ratchet down all the waste and excess of the capitalist economic order, which is fundamentally at the root of the global warming emergency? This never-ending cycle of production and consumption and the relentless expansion drive of capitalism, which doesn't know limits. There's no day in the life of a capitalist where he says, I'm, or she says, I'm happy where I am. I'm not going to go out and try and conquer new territories, exploit more labor, exploit more natural resources. The capitalist system doesn't know how to do that. So what are, we, what are we faced with then? How radical are the measures that need to be taken in the face of that? And thirdly, we face, uh, my third concern in coming to this is we face fundamental issues of socialist transformation in practical terms in parts of the world, especially in Latin America. We have countries that are embarked on uh, uh, a socialist transformation with Venezuela and Bolivia in the, in the lead. We have Cuba, which is miraculously continues to survive, and yet Cuba itself in its own way confronts all of the difficulties and challenges that um, uh, countries on the road to socialism face in the face of the global capitalist, globalist juggernaut. And so how do these uh, relatively small countries deal with globalized capitalism and its huge, huge power? And you know, there's a question, I mean, to show how flawed my own thinking in all this is, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about China. What is China today? Is China a capitalist country? Is it a state capitalist country? To what degree do the uh, socialist property forms, which undoubtedly came into place after 1949, to, which, to what degree do those continue to exist? And how important is that for, for any thinking left-wing and socialist person in the world to, to recognize and understand? I'm really, as I think about it, because I, I attended a session tomorrow, I'm rather humbled, if not embarrassed, by my degree of ignorance of present-day China. And, you know, I, I, okay, I'll share some of the blame for that, but I also think that this is another reflection on the state of discussion and political analysis in the world today, which I know is very poor with respect to uh, all of the republics that succeeded the, the Soviet Union, but I see also quite clearly that's the case with China. Uh, China is not on the agenda of the global left at the degree it needs to be for study, analysis, and then political conclusions. Who, who do we have to work with in China to build the alternative uh, society that we need to confront war and militarism, the global warming emergency, and growing social inequities. There's also the rather important question of whether or not China and whether or not Russia are imperialist. And this is a question that we have spent a lot of time debating from the New Cold War website, because we reject the idea that Russia is an imperialist country. Capitalist, yes. And more accurately, I would say state capitalist. But imperialist, no. It's not, and that, there's, that has fundamental uh, repercussions. Now, I, I published an article that this talk is based on, um, which is uh, Reflections on the Russian Revolution of 1917, and I have print copies here, so I think I have enough for everyone in the room if you want to take one with you. Uh, but I go through what I think are some of the, the, the key points of significance of the Russian Revolution. Number one, it was simply a gigantic world event. It transformed the world, and it continues to reverberate today. I, I, I see the Russian Revolution reverberating when I go to, to Russia today and look at how Russia functions, um, its, its constitutional uh, makeup, all of, these, all of these questions. So um, it was the first attempt by the world to build a socialist economy. So the lessons of those decades of constructing 
attempting to construct a socialist economy were and remain fundamentally important for us. And thirdly, there's a large question of what happened. After all, the Soviet Union did part, depart from this earth. So what was, where were the flaws in the Soviet Union, in the USSR, that meant that it did not sustain itself in the way, for example, that Cuba has done? Cuba sustained itself for how many years has it been? It's remarkable, 55 years, some crazy thing. How do they do it? I don't know, but they've done it. And Cuba has, Cuba's not the only proof of the viability of socialism in, in, in the modern world, but it's sure pretty far up the top of the list. So why Cuba and why not the Soviet Union? Fundamental questions. So I, these are what I've tried to address in um, the, the, uh, my essay. Now, I think what's, what's fundamentally important to understand about the, um, the evolution of the Russian Revolution was just how destructive were the conditions in which it was born. I mean, it's beyond, beyond imagination. Uh, the first three years of terrible, terrible civil war in, in the early um, Soviet Republic. Well, Russia became the Soviet Union in, in 1922, but the early Russian Socialist Republic. These are a couple of maps. This is a better map here that shows how small uh, was the territory that the Russian Revolution came to have in the beginning stage, because all of that white space off to the east of central Russia was the, the territory of the foreign military intervention and also the, the, the civil war waged by the old Tsarist regime. Uh, that was a, that's a pretty small uh, part of territory by uh, October of 1919, which was under the control of the new Socialist Republic in Russia. And there were uh, soldiers from the United States, Canada, Britain, France, Czechoslovakia, Japan. It's got to be 20 countries that invaded the early Soviet Union beginning in 1918, including Canada. 5,000 soldiers from Canada who set sail from Victoria, British Columbia in order to overthrow the Russian Revolution. So the level of intervention was shocking. U.S. soldiers here marching in Vladivostok in 1918. Uh, British soldiers here in the north of Russia, north of uh, Moscow, on the Arctic Ocean shoreline. And then just the level of destruction was incredible. So. The revolution did succeed in defending itself through the course of the Civil War. But in 1920, when the Civil War had ended, and, they, and, and Russia could now begin to turn to, to serious task of social uh, construction and reconstruction, um, this, is what they, this is what they had to work with. Um, and so I think understanding just how much destruction the World War and the Civil War and the foreign intervention caused is fundamental to understanding the difficulties that the early Soviet Republic had. If we don't understand that, then we're, we're really off, off base in, uh, in, in appreciating it. And of course, the very important last point, which I've highlighted here, which is that expected revolution in Western Europe didn't happen, sadly, tragically. Um, our previous speaker has, has talked about Germany and in the early uh, years of the 1920s. So this was a huge blow to the early uh, Socialist Republic. The fact that uh, revolution, that is solidarity, where Russia's poor and underdeveloped economy could join up with the developed economies of Germany, France, whatever country was successful in overthrowing capitalism like the Russian workers and peasants had done. And then also Russia dealt with a very, very complex uh, population, the, the nationalities. It's a miracle what the, uh, the early Russian Revolution accomplished by way of national self-determination 
of uh, the peoples and nations oppressed during the Tsarist time. I mean, that should be a talk at next, the next GERD conference, because this is an extremely important uh, experience in the early Soviet Union, which reverberates today. It marks very much the, the, the politics of the Russian Federation today and of the different uh, republics that are affiliated to the Russian Federation. But anyway, just to say another level of complication. So Russia headed in, Russia of the 1920s, or and what became the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1922, had three very distinct phases of economic, uh, not of a political economic development, shall we say. The one that I think is key to studying for today's world is the new economic policy, which came into place after the civil, after they had succeeded with the civil war, which is, you know, they inherited a, a country completely wrecked. And now they could begin to build a new and progressive society. Um, and so, I've, you know, I've highlighted here and don't have time to talk about some of the, the general outlines of the, the new economic policy. But it was the new economic policy was really concerned with two large things. Number one was to incentivize agricultural production because country, uh, Russia in the early 1920s was a country that still suffered famine when things didn't go right. And there was a terrible famine in 1921 that killed millions of people, millions, which was really no one's fault was what the Civil War bequeathed to them. But this is not a small question in, early, in the early Soviet republics. How do we feed the population? And what's the relative weight of resources to agriculture versus industry? Because you can't convince peasants to produce more food if they get nothing in return. You know, they need tractors, they need fertilizer, they need agricultural science, they need health care, they need education for their children. Well, if the Soviet Republic couldn't provide that, well, forget it. People aren't going to Peasants did produce food during the Civil War years strictly out of moral uh, conviction that they felt they had something to defend, but hey, it was time now to, uh, for some, some balance to be drawn. And so, um, and then the, of course the third tragic era. Now, I don't have time, they, we've only given 20 minutes here. The new economic policy was cut short prematurely, and this was the first disastrous policy under the new Soviet leadership under Stalin, which was to put an end to the new economic policy and then into a, enter into a forced march of industrialization and of uh, collectivized, forced collectivized agriculture. Those programs were a disaster in their implementation. Millions of people died. Um, and so this is not studied, frankly. This is not studied. This, this understanding of, of the tragedy of, of the, the, the premature ending of the new economic policy. And I really uh, appreciated rereading, I hadn't read it for decades, uh, Stephen Cohen's book, Bukharin and the, and the Bolshevik Revolution. It's a biography of Nikolai Bukharin, where he spends a great deal of time talking about the new economic policy. So there's been an inattention to history, and I fault the movement that I was part of um, for some of this. Oh, I don't, uh, I lost my slide. I think. I think the Leon Trotsky and his followers, um, I think they made some pretty fundamental errors that his, those of us, us Marxist historians have to go back to. There was a writing off of the significance of NEP, more or less by 1927. You can read it in The Revolution Betrayed, where you know, you're getting that very strong um, impression that NEP had run its course by 1927, 28, and I mean, the, of course, the left opposition had its own ideas for development. They were very good. They were very good. Um, they weren't. Um, but no, I, I think it, it was. It, it would be wrong to say that that by 19, it, it, it was correct to put an end to NEP. I think that 
I find that what comes through in the writings of Trotsky and his followers was an inattention to the critical importance of the worker-peasant alliance. And this is something which Bukharin, really all of them, even Trotsky, understood in their bones. But I think that as the disputes over the new economic policy deepened and became more and more factionalized and more and more harsh, I think there was an erosion in the understanding of Trotsky and his followers of this critical importance of maintaining above all, above all, the worker-peasant alliance. Lenin said from the get-go, he said, if we don't retain the worker-peasant alliance, it's over. It doesn't matter what we do. We cannot retain the loyalty of the peasants, not by force, not because we have an army, but by convincing them that their future is better with us than going back to a capitalist order, then it's over. There was a factionalization of the debate over NEP. All of a sudden, you know, they were all struggling for the same goal. How do we deal with the complications of this NEP policy? And all of a sudden, there's right-wing factions and there's people accused of wanting a restoration of capitalism. The, the factionalization of the debate was very wrong. There was um, the declaration that the, the concept of socialism in one country was an inherently um, dead-end discussion is patently wrong. Like it or not, the Soviet Union became a, a socialism in one country, and it wasn't particularly the kind of socialism that we want to fight or struggle for. Cuba has been kind of a socialism in one country as well. It's just the wrong way of looking at the debate, because there were fundamental issues involved. What, was hap what happened was not so much that the Soviet leadership declared adherence to the idea of a socialism in one country, but that the, so the Soviet leadership lost confidence in world revolution because of the, the setbacks in Europe I talked about earlier. So they said, you know, it's just not, we're not going to prioritize that as we did before. We have to step back. And I think uh, very important was Trotsky's revival, formal revival in 1929 of the theory of permanent revolution, which is, it's an imbalanced, uh, it was and remains a very imbalanced way of looking at the tasks of socialist revolution and socialist uh, construction. So I think we have to go back to those years because the lessons of NEP, they stare us in the face when we look today at Venezuela. What, what's the role of private sector capitalism in the Venezuelan economy? Has the government got the balance where they're right? What about China? As we know, China has immense capitalist investment. What does that signify for China? What are the dangers involved there? Is China still some kind of a socialist republic? That's a very real discussion that has to happen. I submit that many of the lessons from these years are extremely relevant to us. But I also argue quite forcefully that the romanticized interpretations of the Russian Revolution of the 1920s have, have they've worsened over the years by successive generations. The idealization of the years of the Civil War, for example, there was no idealization there. That is something to be avoided at, at all cost, if, if at all possible. The, um, uh, and, and, and so on. So um, I think that a real rearming of Marxism is required in many fronts, and I think a very important front of that is we have to re go back to the, to the early years of the Russian Revolution and put aside, uh, confront, let's say, confront the misinterpretations and the misconceptions that have been passed down to us over the years because they don't help us today. It's obviously they don't help us. When we have people who claim the mantle of the Russian Revolution supporting a right-wing coup in Ukraine, and I could uh, talk about Syria, and, you know, I could give you lots of examples. Something is flawed in, in the state of uh, Marxist political theory, I would certainly argue the case also, same case for anarchist theory, and liberalism, which has swallowed the anti-Russia propaganda line in the United States like we can't believe. We need a wholesale renewal of all of these political ideologies that are looking, are seriously interested in, in fighting for uh, a 
a progressive world that we, where we confront global warming, where we confront war and militarism, and where we confront the rising social inequalities. I suggest if we don't aim frankly and outright for a renewal of, of radical political theories, then we're going to continue to stagnate as, as I think we are. And I hope that uh, many more discussions like this, many more conferences like this will put us on that path. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. During the discussion after the talk, Roger Annis concluded with some final remarks. The left-wing followers of the Russian Revolution, I think, have bequeathed to us, many have, a maximalism in politics, where the interpretation of the Russian Revolution is, um, we want to do the same thing. I'm sorry, I don't want a civil war. I don't want Venezuela to suffer a civil war. I'm glad Haiti hasn't suffered a civil war. We see in Syria where, you know, the politics of maximalism could lead. If that, there's nothing heroic about civil war. Well, there is. I mean, people fought for a, a great cause, and it was, but it was a curse. It was a curse that they lived with. They knew it was a curse, and they called it that, or some variant of it. Um, the, the richness of the, um, of the strategic and tactical sense of the Russian revolutionaries and those who tried to emulate them in those years following is terribly rich for us. The way, for example, in which the new revolutionary government in, um, in Russia sought alliances with the anti-imperialist national governments in Asia, Iran, Turkey, China, many, many, profound history. And I, I see a lot of that uh, in what we need to accomplish in the Middle East today, because the, the fundamental struggle in the Middle East today is not socialism. It's not socialist. There's no country in the Middle East that's going to be socialist for a while, let me put it politely. The fundamental struggle is against imperialist intervention. And so anything that aids the uh, national peoples and governments of the Middle East to foil intervention and the attempts to overthrow national governments is profoundly important. And I think the assistance that the Russian government has provided to the Syrian government has been profoundly important for the world. I don't think the Syrian government is, is faultless in what happened beginning in the year 2011. In fact, I very much regret that there's not enough discussion about what were some of the alternative courses that the Assad government in Syria could have taken in 2011-12 to avoid precisely a descent into the hellish civil war that really was imposed on them. They, they bear some responsibility. Um, that's for, those lessons from the years of the Bolsheviks are extremely important. Meanwhile, in the world today, we have something totally new and different, and that's not even recognized by the global left, or not enough of it, which is that we have two countries to start with, Russia and China, which have become major powers. I used to call China a capitalist country. I, I'm going to hold off on that. We have you know, two countries that look a lot like state capitalism to me that, for reasons of history, are confronting and standing up to imperialism. Well, that poses a whole new world. And, and what this does, the Bolsheviks always say, well, this creates openings for people to survive. Countries like Venezuela can survive because they're not dependent on the U.S. anymore exclusively. They can trade with China. They can call on Russia for diplomatic support. And if push comes to shove and there's U.S. intervention, we'll see. We'll see who, the, who are the allies of Venezuela who can come to their assistance. Cuba, of course, but Cuba's not going to stand up to the U.S. alone. That's a whole new world. So we need to go back and see how the Bolsheviks rather successfully survived in really worse conditions than what, certainly what Cuba's ever faced, what, even what Russia faces today, although the nuclear weapon threat has a whole new dimension. Um, I spoke of Bukharin. I don't, I don't think there was a right and wrong side in that. 
I think everybody was seeking the same goal up until about 1928, and then the whole thing was tossed out the window by what became the government in the Soviet Union. So I don't take sides when I recommend uh, Bukharin's, uh, Stephen Cohen's biography. It's quite favorable to Bukharin, but I think for very good reasons. But there were lots of problems in, that were happening in that that were not solved. There was inattention, and all sides in fact agreed. Bukharin himself agreed by 1927, and said, yeah, we haven't paid enough attention to, um, uh, to, to planning the industrial economy and putting much more priority on, on forming on a voluntary basis more cooperative or collective forms of agriculture. So the discussion is, from our, from what we've learned, we've barely begun to learn the real lessons there. And, I, and one of the things I think is tragic about NEP is how it all descended into factions. There's a right wing and this and that. And it was, no, everyone was striving for the same goals. And nobody had, nobody had all of the right answers. And that will be true, that will be true in China today, it'll be true in Russia. Nobody had all the right answers. Nobody in Venezuela has the right answers. It's people got to come together and figure this out. Uh, the good and the bad of what's happened with the, the government in, um, in Venezuela in the past 10 years. So I hope that's, that's the kind of uh, legacy that we begin to study now of the Russian Revolution instead of, instead of you know, simplistic repeating of formulas, which you know, over time they brought out. Like we're seeing the maximalism with respect to the Russian Revolution of 1917 is becoming right-wing socialism today. It's becoming people that are supporting U.S. intervention in Syria. We have to finish for a while over time. That was Roger Annis, speaking at the University of Manitoba's Geopolitical Economy Research Group's Revolutions Conference. My name is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Today, as part of our summer series, we're airing excerpts from the University of Manitoba-based Geopolitical Economy Research Group's Conference on Revolutions, held in the fall of 2017. We just heard from writer and trade union activist Roger Anist. Next, we'll hear from Alan Freeman. Alan Freeman is the Winnipeg-based co-director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group, which put on the weekend conference. He's a former economist at the Greater London Authority and edits the Future of World Capitalism book series at Manchester University Press and the Future of World Capitalism book series with Pluto Press. In his talk, Freeman discussed the topic of parties of revolution. While political parties are often associated with revolution, to what extent do parties create revolutions? And to what extent do revolutions create parties? Here is Alan Freeman speaking at the University of Manitoba's St. John's College on September 29th, 2017. The basis of all science is that theory must confront reality. You're right. If you have a theory that doesn't explain what you see, what's wrong is not what you see, it's your theory. So I defer to the two speakers who have addressed fundamental issues of what really happened in the German Revolution, what really happened in the Russian Revolution. And that I cannot aspire to do the same. But I'm launching an inquiry into a long, a part of that factual inquiry which has been missed out for a long time, which is the study of parties. I think one of the things that's least understood in the left is what is a party, 
Where does a party come from? And the reason is that they replace the discussion of what parties do with the discussion of what parties ought to be. The number of discussions I have heard about the NDP in which the question is asked, is it socialist or not, are 50 times the discussions I've heard about where did Jeremy Corbyn come from. But it's the second question you have to ask, not the first one, because history, as Hegel tells us, is green and theory is grey. So whatever happens is going to exceed our expectations. Does that mean that we approach the study of fact in a theoryless way? I don't agree with that either. And in fact, I think that the only way to study the facts is to try and theorize them. I'm simply saying that if you forget that the facts exist, your argument is actually religious. It's not scientific. Particularly the people who engage in what I call angel socialism on the head of a pin discussions. Is China socialist? Is the NDP socialist? I cannot imagine any more useless question. The question is, what is China? What is the NDP? What are the social democratic parties of today? What are the, all the parties? And I ask the question, um, what are parties of revolution? Because I think that that's where all the people I know who wish to study parties come from. They come from weird places, like one of the questions is, am I in a revolutionary party or not? Um, and this is an interesting question, but also, if I can be very provocative, like the question of whether China is socialist, a pretty useless question. I'm going to explain why I think it's a useless question. Because I looked around and I said, what parties in history that have made revolutions have ever put the word revolutionary in their name? None. Not one party in history that had the word revolutionary in its name has ever made a revolution. No party that has emerged from a revolution has ever had the word revolutionary in its name until after the revolution. Very fundamental fact, one we should reflect on. And I began thinking about this by asking the simple question, what is the relation between party and revolution? And I want to pose a very straightforward question. Do revolutionary parties make revolutions, or do revolutions make revolutionary parties? Now, that's a deliberately provocative question, and I'm not going to give you a straightforward answer. You'll be pleased to hear. But all I would say is, can we say it's dialectical? I'm going to explain that by looking at a series of revolutionary events in history and asking what really happened. I think the key is, it's a bit like the question about how many psychoanalysts does it change, take to change a light bulb, which is that none but the right bulb was really one to change. So the revolutionary party emerges from the revolution, but you always, in every revolution, find a bunch of quite conscious people organizing, often in the most surprising ways. For example, in Castro's army, in the form of the Bolsheviks, in the form of the Young Turks, in the form of the banditry in Mexico, but who have an idea of where they want things to go. When the moment is ripe for the revolution, exactly as Ottokar described, it takes command. So the spontaneous, the old spontaneous organized debate has the answer, you cannot plan for a revolution. You can try, but when, when it happens, it doesn't take the form you expected. The real key to the success is one to know what the 
potential dynamic of that revolution is, and you always find a group of people who had some understanding of where things were going, and secondly, the recognition of the creations of the revolution. And I'm going to put this again in a quite blunt way. I don't think that the Bolsheviks created the Soviets. The Soviets created the Bolsheviks. There's nothing in Bolshevik theory with a, except for a few writings of Marx on the role of the communes in the Russian villages, an occasional discussion about smashing the state and Marx and Engels on the Paris Commune, very important. There's nothing in the Bolshevik legacy where you see them say, what we need is Soviets. But when the Soviets happened, they said, by God, that's it. So that it's the recognition of what the revolution has achieved that defines the party of revolution, much more than the pre-preparation. And the last thing is this counterposition between radicalism and intransigence. The hallmark of a revolutionary party is never, in my opinion, and you can look at every party that's ever made a revolution, the radical nature of its demands. And I'm going to go through this revolution by revolution. Not one of the parties that made revolution advanced the slogan, let us make a revolution in order to achieve socialism. Not one. Not the Russians, not the Chinese. The revolution was the purpose of overthrowing the aristocracy, overthrowing the imperialists, creating a democracy, whatever they did. Then they said, we have to create socialism because that's the only way you can achieve the goals of the revolution. But bread, peace, and land was the demand of the Bolsheviks. That's the most wide popular demand you can possibly advance. And then the socialism comes in as the means of achieving it. And the Cubans are perhaps the illustration of the fact that's not a historical relic, Castro did not start with any requirement of socialism. If you read, history will absolve you from top to bottom. There is no mention of socialism. There is no mention of nationalization. There is no mention of expropriation. He was driven to it by what happened, exactly as the process that's driving the Bolivarian revolution today has imposed itself. So very fundamental reversal of the way that people think about revolutions is called for. I'm going to go, when did revolution start? Oh, another thing. When you're learning from history, you have to learn from its actors. And one of the things you have to do is take their words at face value. I just think this is incredibly important. If you want to learn what Leninism was, Marxism was, you have to read Marx. If you want to know what Leninism was, you have to read Lenin. You don't go and say, well, you are not really a Leninist, or not, you are not really a Marxist, or not, you are not really a socialist, and therefore I'm going to, you know, my, my sect will wage war on your sect. You have to say, let's look at what Lenin said, how much of it is uh, how much it was proven by history to be valid, how much was, was not borne out by history. So, well, was there a revolution before the French Revolution? Yes, there were. There were very important anti-colonial revolutions, and there were things that were not called revolutions, but were called risings. And risings and rebellions have existed. I mean, we know there was a Jewish rising in when it was AD BC 63, well, against the Romans. So anybody who watches Monty Python knows that risings are very old. When did they come to be called revolutions? I don't know if anybody knows the origin of the word. 17th century. No, it is Copernicus' work, De Revolutionis Orbium, on the revolution of the planets. 
because it took such a revolution in thinking that it became synonymous with the word for the creation of new forms of government in the anti-monarchic revolutions of the, the late 17th century. The origin is actually the scientific revolution. So there were risings, there were things that didn't call themselves revolutions that later became called revolutions. The French Revolution is the first one that really took the mantle of that title on. Now the most interesting thing about that is there was no party of revolution. The Jacobins, actually the term left and right, comes from the place that people sat on the side of Parliament as the revolution was unfolding. So we've inherited um, a definition of what we think of as left wing that's defined by what people did, not what they thought. The party then, the Jacobins, became effectively a party. The Montagnards and so on, they were defined by that. But actually it was a process that gave rise to the organized forms uh, in which the division was, do you defend the institutions and gains of the revolution or do you not? The English Revolution, I, I don't know why that was missing because that was actually the first one, often called the Civil War. People, the Glorious Revolution, I think, was the first revolution called a revolution. Actually, it wasn't a revolution at all. It was a sort of minor coup d'etat. The Civil War was the real revolution. Again, no party of revolution, but what there was was an army. The new model army was the instrument of revolution. I haven't got time to go into it, but there's an extremely important series of aspects of it. It was in defense of a regime. It was in defense of parliament against the king. It was formed to defend a definite institution that existed. It didn't say, let's have a parliament. The parliamentarians formed the army. It was a national professional army because the aristocratic armies would only fight in the locality. And what was needed was an army composed of people who would go and fight anywhere. Unfortunately, that was the birth of modern imperialism because they were perfectly prepared to go and fight in Ireland and, and the rest of the world and, and were better than the monarchic armies. But the origin of it is a national army. So revolution in both France and England becomes synonymous with nation. And this is the third thing that I think it's very important to understand, is that the idea of a nationless revolution is a very nice one, but it corresponds to nothing we see in history. All modern revolutions have been national. And in fact, not only that, if we start moving on and looking at the movements of the later 19th and early 20th century, we see that the question of national sovereignty was at the forefront of the revolutionary process, not at the back. It's not, we want socialism and oh, let's have a nation. It's, we want to have a nation. And the first, and again, in terms of definitions, most interesting case, is the Irish Easter Rising, which you'll remember was commended by Lenin as an exemplary revolutionary action. And the, the demand of, of the Irish Revolution was, was very straightforward. To Arthur Griffiths, when he founded the, 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 in 1905, Sinn Féin, we ourselves, to establish in Ireland's capital a national legislature endowed with the moral authority of the Irish nation. That was the goal. Mexico is extraordinarily interesting because the actual party, which is now called the Institutional Revolutionary Party, a wonderful name, a party which ruled for 70 years, um, wasn't formed until 1929. It was not the party of the revolution. It was formed when Cardenas 
insisted that they should take the achievements of the revolution further than national sovereignty by throwing out the United States from its ownership of oil and agriculture and establishing that in order to pursue and accomplish the goals of the Mexican Revolution itself, a social transformation was necessary, the expropriation of the foreign ownership of Mexican land and, 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 and resources. So the interesting thing is they defined themselves as revolutionary in the sense of saying, we will carry through the demands of the original revolutionaries, just as what the Bolivarians are doing today, but we will do it by social means and economic means, not just political means, because you can't complete the political revolution So without the economic revolution. Now, how long have I got? Six minutes. Okay. The Turkey, I wanted to say a lot about Turkey and the Republican People's Party because this defeats again any notion, and it, I think Turkey was an absolutely revolutionary process. You know, it's what basically presented, prevented the imperialist powers from completely carving up the Middle East. And one, one, one should never forget that when one's talking about the current Turkey. The interesting thing is they did not carry through the social transformation because they were, you know, resistant to communism. It's one of the reasons for the mess that they're in today is that you know, they did not complete the social transformation. But why? Because that made it impossible for them to articulate the national question in such a way that you could have a sovereign government of Turkey which included a number of nationalities. So they completely mixed up the issue of ethnicity and national sovereignty by not defining a multinational polity. Whereas the Bolsheviks precisely established from the get-go, both in Russia and in the Soviet Union, the notion of a plurinational polity in which the protection of the rights of national minorities would be a fundamental aspect of the democratic constitution. Another part of Russian legacy which is forgotten. And by the way, very interesting question, which great power in the world today is the only great or even secondary power to support the holding of a referendum on Kurdish autonomy? Does anybody know? The only power in the region and in the world which has supported the holding of the referendum is Russia. The United States opposed it. Turkey opposed it. Iran opposed it. Assad opposed it. The Russians said you should hold it. Why? Because we defend the territorial sovereignty of Iran, of Syria, of Turkey. But we must know what the Kurds want. So you should hold the referendum which I think is an extraordinarily interesting indication of some of the legacy of the thinking of the Russian Revolution. But so, plurinationalism. Now, the next thing I want to come on to, and I'm going to have to rush this, is where did we get the modern notion of the Communist Party from? Where did it come from? Where did we have this idea of a single democratic centralist party that um, doesn't tolerate debate or discussion within it, that imposes from above, and I'm not saying that such parties actually exist, by the way, this, this is an idea which is defended, which I think in China, that, that it doesn't describe what you really see in the Chinese Communist Party as I know it. It certainly doesn't describe the modern Russian Communist Party. And I'm not sure the extent to which it described the old one, but it's, it's a sort of, you know, how can I put it, the most malicious conception of Stalinism that one can possibly have. Well, it's very unclear that such a conception was ever central to what was going on. First of all, many people think of the Bolsheviks as a party. Bolsheviks were never a party. I think at the end of the split in 1912, this is my reading, they said, we are the true RSDLP. They did not say, we are the Bolshevik party. They, they, they 
kicked out the compromisers and, and, and so on and said, right, we, we, ch we choose the mantle of the party. So they, they said, we are the broad party, but we will accomplish the aims of that broad party by pursuing revolutionary methods on being, by being the most resolute leadership of it. The RSDLP's manifesto, which I read for these purposes, is an extraordinarily long document, and it has, we are for socialism, we are for you know, over, overthrowing all the remnants of the bourgeoisie and all the rest of it. The most extraordinary thing is when you look at what they actually proposed when they stood for parliament, the demands are all democratic. I was going to try and read them out. But sovereignty of the people, that is the concentration of supreme state power wholly in the hands of a legislative assembly. That was the first demand of the RSDLP, its founding manifesto. Universal, equal and direct suffrage, extensive local self-government, inviolability of personal domicile, unrestricted freedom of conscience speech, freedom to travel, abolition of social estates, right of the population to education in their native language, right of self-determination for all nations within the boundaries of the state. This is long before Lenin, by the way. Right of any person to prosecute any official before a duel, the jury through the usual channel. Judges to be elected by the people. Replacement of the standing army by universal arming of the people. Separation of church from state. Freedom and compulsory and general and vocational. This is not a social agenda. This is a democratic agenda. But they then followed that with a series of economic demands which were forgotten. They were not at the center of what was going on in Russia. What was going on in Russia was the fight against Tsarist monarchy and the feudalism and imperialist intervention. It's only afterwards when it was discovered the only way you could achieve that and go right through that the issue of the necessity of an immediate social transformation, the immediate nationalization of the means of production was posed. The Bolsheviks were perfectly happy to co-run the factories with commissars supervising workers' control and so on, but the bourgeoisie would not agree to it, which I think is part of, you know, Cuba, exactly the same process. That's what's going on now in Venezuela. So I have to really rush now. The second thing that happened in the history was the 22 points. Now, I haven't got time into 21 points. The, the purpose of founding the Communist International was to make sure that the internationalization of the Russian Revolution could be achieved by parties that were truly internationalist and communist in all the countries of the world. So the real purpose of the 21 points was to separate out the communists from the social democrats. And I think it's from there. I'm not saying it was wrong. I think it was correct. But history has moved on. The separation of the true internationalists and the true revolutionaries from the, the centrists and is as necessary. But that does not have to take an organizational form. A party of people conforming to the 21 points was the necessity of a specific point in history. It was necessary at that time. I do not believe it to be necessary now. I do not believe it to be a principle of party organization that you have to conform to the 21 points, including democratic centralism and all the rest of it. I'll just put that out there to think about. It was a part of history. The part of history doesn't mean we have to make it part of the present. You have to look at the circumstances. So I was going to talk about Cuba, Iran, Venezuela, but I'm just going to pose questions. What constitutes a revolution? Is the uh, to me, the replacement of the state by a different kind of state is fundamental. Um, is the party a precondition or an outcome? What's the dialectical relation? What is the precondition? I think the precondition, what defines revolutionaries, is not the radicalism of their demands, but their intransigence in pursuing them. 
And everywhere you look at the Irish, the, the, the young Turks, the, the Iranians for that matter, right? Okay, um, Cuba, the, the Bolsheviks, you find that the people who came to the fore in the revolutionary process were always the people who said, we really mean it. These are quite simple, democratic, elementary, broad human demands, bread beef, but we really mean it, and as Malcolm X put it, by any means necessary. And then the last thing is, what does any means necessary mean? It includes war. In every revolution that one studies, there has been a war. This Roger described in great detail the civil war in Russia, which is a fundamental part of Russian history, which is often forgotten. And Ottokar described the military configuration and the revolt of the soldiers and sailors. So that the old Regis de Bray formula, I don't know if people remember that, Révolution dans la Révolution, in which he said Cuba had given the world a new model of revolution because they weren't forming Soviets and so on. Completely wrong. In every revolution, there is a new form of government. The revolutionary wing of the movement is the wing that defends that the democratic achievements of that, whatever it is, doesn't necessarily mean you know, perfect self-governing democracy. In the case of Cuba, it's defending the country against invasion. It's as simple as that. Nothing more, okay? And you have to understand this to understand what's going on in Cuba. It's the defense of such democratic gains as have been achieved by the revolution in itself and its activities. And that means military. There's never been a separation of military and Soviet so, uh, and forms of government, and I think that's a, a shibboleth of, of the Western left, which I'll finish on this, is to believe that it's possible, especially in the modern world as we look at it now with what America's doing, to separate the issue of the form of government, the kind of social measures that are taken, and the military struggle. Following the talk, Alan Freeman engaged the audience, including a listener, with a query relating to the question of modern revolutions needing to be rooted in national movements. The questioner pointed to the revolutionary situation in Guatemala as stemming not from a national movement, but from a regional movement, establishing autonomous territory free from corporate exploitation. I want to say something on this issue of um, the autonomous region. Because I think there's a discussion that could be had, and it's a non-discussion. The non-discussion would be one side, one side says you have to have a nation state, and therefore you can't have autonomous regions. And the other side says you have to have autonomous regions, and therefore you can't have a national state. Now, um, I think that if the Bolsheviks were in power in Guatemala, they would be the most enthusiastic champions of the autonomous regions and the most enthusiastic defenders of the national sovereignty of Guatemala at one and the same time. I mean, the national policy of the Bolsheviks was incredible. There's, there's a book by Shimov, you know, that goes through. They basically took the Austro-Hungarian constitution, the second, you know, the later constitution, which is based on national uh, territories, not uh, beliefs, not religious beliefs, and said, we're going to implement. They would go into villages which spoke, you spoke earlier of national renewal, of linguistic renewal. They would go into villages where there would be a hundred speakers of a single language and declare them an autonomous oblast with the right to speak that language, in which they would even make it the official language and say, no, the Russians have got to learn that minority language because that's how we implement uh, local self-government, local self-determination. So I think that a consistent policy would be to absolutely recognize all the rights of the um, Within the framework of a national sovereign state. The second point concerns um, 
I missed something out which is very fundamental. I think the two characteristics of the revolutionaries are not are intransigent and mass-based. That they seek to represent the whole of the people. Which is why all those parties that, for example, have taken an ethnic stance have never been, never been nationalists. That was the turning point in the JHP in, in, in Germany, in, in Turkey, in my opinion. When they, when they redefine themselves as an ethnic party, right? And I think that the fundamental thing I take from Rogers and others, which is incredibly important, is that the, what, what's really, what are you really saying when you say the Bolsheviks had to keep the alliance of the proletariat peasantry? Is they had to represent the whole nation. Except for the bourgeoisie, except for the people who stand in the way of that, right? Why do you have to represent this whole nation? Because if you don't, you have no democracy. And this, to me, has always been fundamental. I don't understand why people don't get this in relation to Syria. The fundamental division around Syria is that Israel and the US, and until recently Turkey, wanted to partition Syria. And Russia said they must have their territorial integrity. Within that, there is no contradiction from the Russian point of view and having referenda on Kurdish national rights, widest possible self-determination, but the territorial sovereignty is fundamental. Why? How can you possibly have a process that might get rid of Assad, if that's what you want, if it is not democratic? It cannot be democratic if you exclude half the nation from taking part in it. Territorial sovereignty and democracy are indissolubly connected in this day and age. We may move on much later to a new international order when imperialism has been overthrown, where that's not the case. But the nation is what you're given. It's not an ideal. You're stuck with it. If you look at history, look at what revolutions have done. I'm not saying you must make a revolution in a national framework. They have. That's what we've got. And the attempt to suit, you know, Russia, Tukhashevsky, the attempt to export revolution and invade Poland was a disastrous failure because the Polish then saw the new socialist country as an invading state. So they were stuck with the national uh, dimension of what they were doing, even though they, you know, the Soviet Union was a, a step forward. In, in a very fundamental historical sense, it's imposed on us by history. And, 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 and I, if there's anything I want to say is, you know, you have to, look, you have to stare reality in the face when you're working out what to do. But you don't have to look for a demand that you're going to be intransigent on. You say, what do the people need? What do the broadest mass of people need? What's standing in the way of it? That, that, and then you're intransigent on that, is the way I would see it. That was a talk by Alan Freeman, former economist with the Greater London Authority and co-director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. The talk was presented at the University of Manitoba September 29th, 2017, as part of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group's Revolutions Conference. More details about the conference can be found at geopoliticaleconomy.org. Music for this week's episode was by Purple Planet Music. More selections are available at the site www.purple-planet.com. The Global Research News Hour will return next week with more special summer programming. My name is Michael Welch.